Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Clam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. We got an amazing episode. Great conversation with Margaret Cho. She's a comedy luminary. Do you know what a luminary is? I do. It's the poem that's important. They illuminate, presumably. Look it up. There's some great resources on the internet, uh, dictionary.com, lots of wikis. And if you just type it into Bing, the new Bing app, it'll Bing it right out for you. So do that. Love of Christmas. So before we get to that, just a quick little story. If you've been following weather.com, you know that it's been raining in LA. When I say it's been raining in LA, I mean it rained like two days. Uh, and the improv, being an old building, is susceptible to leaks. And guess what? There was a leak right here in this podcast studio at the Hollywood Improv. And you'll never believe where it was. And before I tell you where it was, I to ensure that Andrew, the producer, puts in the sound of rain, I'm going to say that out loud so that if there's no rain sound effect, you know that he didn't step up to the plate. And now you can put a baseball sound effect. No, you don't really have to. Uh, the leak happened right above the soundboard mixer. And if you know anything about podcasting, that's an important element required to record sound. And so you can only imagine the, the insanity around here. As we've learned, electricity and water don't match. And if you didn't know, uh, rain is water. I found that on Bing. <laughs> the new Bing app. Find, discover, and do in a whole new way. So you might be asking yourself, how am I listening to Jamie's voice right now when he just told us that the soundboard that is vital for recording sound is was broken? Well, we improvised. We, and when I say we, I mean other people that do technical stuff here because I was just sitting at my desk uh, answering emails. But they pulled up their bootstraps. As the old saying goes, you pull them up. So they salvaged what they could make work from the old system, dug into the crates of other stuff around here, and now there's a bunch of things plugged into new things, and the desk that the mixer was on is in a new place, and where I'd usually be looking uh, west, now I'm looking east, but it's an interim solution that solves a problem. And I couldn't help but think about the metaphor that provides for us and our careers as as artists and people that want to make things, you know, there's always going to be a leak. We all know that whether it's in your roof or maybe it's in your set, your comedy set, you know, maybe there's that joke that's just not hitting. Think of that as a leak. Well, you could quit altogether or you can improvise and use makeshift stuff to salvage that leak. Put another way, there's always a good excuse not to do something. I wanted to throw in the towel, but the towel was being used to fill the leak <laughs> or at least to sop up what mess the leak had made. But, and of course this is going to sound cliche, but there's always going to be hurdles, whether it's a leak or, or an actual hurdle if you're a runner. Uh, and so you could stop or you can go around the hurdle, but I think based on what I know of track and field, that's a disqualification because why wouldn't everyone just go around the hurdles, you know? Um, I'm going to log on to Bing after this and look that up. Download the app today. And the Olympics website, wherever I can find that information. If you have any information about the Olympics and bylaws and hurdles, et cetera, yeah, get that to me as soon as you can. I'm going to get straight to this episode. Uh, We've already got the rain, so Andrew, you don't have to put in any other sound effects. Enjoy this wonderful conversation with the great Margaret Cho. Hey, hey, Jamie, have you done the uh, seamless, unnoticeable Bing product placement like we're, we're supposed to do? Yeah, I did it like three or four times. So no one's going to notice? Nope. It's going to be our little secret. <laughs> Gatekeeper. Welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam, and I am joined by Margaret Cho. Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. Awesome. 
tell me the most inspiring thing that the listeners of this podcast and that I want to hear right now to be inspired. Okay. Um, so when I was very, very young, I was, uh, sleeping with a very, very, very famous comedian and he set me up with his agent to possibly meet, um, because this comedian, he thought I was sexy, but he also thought I was incredibly talented. And, uh, so in order to, uh, sort of advance my career, he set up a meeting with him and his agent and his agent said, uh, to me, um, that, uh, Asian people would never, ever go anywhere in this business and that it would be be better for me since I'm so young to give up my dream of comedy and just get a job where I have hope in succeeding. And anyway, I'm so inspired. Every time I, I see that agent still uh, on occasion now, socially sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, I always remind him of the story. And, you know, uh, actually after, shortly after that happened, I, I got my very first television show and one of that agent's clients was one of the co-stars of the show. So every time I would make a big, 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 like, you know, show of saying hi to him. Yeah. (laughs) So it turns out it worked out. It worked out for me. And he's always, uh, telling that story to, to other people, um, just about how big of a fuck up he is. <laughs> that, well, that's, that is inspiring that he recognizes yeah. how insanely bad that was to say. Yeah. But also it's, it's just, um, it's great because he was wrong. And uh, of course it was incredibly discouraging to hear that as it, a really young woman in comedy. I think I was barely 19 at that point. And, uh, it was, it was devastating, Yeah. but at the same time, I really was so happy just doing comedy and clubs. That was the one thing that I knew I could do. I, I knew that I could always perform in comedy clubs, that I could always have a, a place there, even if it was open mics, that was good enough for me. And, um, so I was satisfied with that and, and, being satisfied with just the art form unto itself. It didn't give me the sense or need of expectations out of this business. You know, I, I really just wanted to do stand up comedy. And the thing is, is that if you're good at that, then that's all you really need. Did you at that point have any aspirations for the TV or anything else? I did. Of course I did. But in truth, uh, it wouldn't have mattered either way. Like I, I was so, happy to do stand up, And I, I, I really loved it. You know, I think when, you know, you start to do stand up comedy and at that point, this is in the late eighties and early nineties and everybody was trying to do their perfect, their television sets to do on the tonight show and David Letterman and everything. All of that seemed very complicated to me and very difficult because in, um, a club, you could really say whatever you want. And, and back then too, it was really unbridled. Like comedy didn't have this sense of needing to be politically correct or any kind of rules. You could really do whatever you wanted because there was no witnesses outside of the people that were at the show. And um, so, you know, you saw a lot of sort of things that maybe weren't the greatest things to see, <laughs> but it was always entertaining. And that was in San Francisco at the time? Um, I started in San Francisco, but I moved here to Los Angeles pretty, pretty early on. Um, and, uh, so that I was just, you know, when you're a comic in San Francisco, you would sort of do these fact finding journeys to Los Angeles with other comics and you would all stay at one person's apartment who was on the road all the time. And, uh, or you would stay at, there was a a club, not a clubhouse, but it was a, it was a kind of a big apartment building that was on the East side by the one one that only comedians lived in. So you had like really old school people like Edie Matthews lived there and um, Keyshawn Shannon, who was uh, my fiance for a time and uh, lots of other like strictly road comics would live in this building. And then um, Bill Hicks would stay there on occasion. Um, so we would all end up like in somebody's room at that place. And it was kind of almost like a residence hotel. It wasn't necessarily like nice apartments or anything. So it was like, they called it the house of cards. Mm-hmm. Oh, Alan Murray lived there mm. forever. He lived on, uh, I think the third floor or something. I remember him living there. Um, like I think Mark McGuire lived there. Like the uh, baseball player. Uh, no, no. <laughs> the, the guitar comic. So like, uh, like we would all sort of pile on at that place. 
I think David Cross lived there for a time too. And so on these fact finding missions, I guess people are still doing that now. It's like, am I, was there, am I ready to be here? Mm-hmm. And you're trying to find representation and all that. Yeah. yeah. You would try to find representation. You would try to get sets at clubs. Like you would come here to the improv and, uh, you would do a set and then you would get $75 for your set. And then in the front, um, they had a little sort of box office, this area where you would go in and you would get the box of envelopes and go through and find your name. And then you would get your check for $50 or $75 for doing sets. I think 50 on, on the weekdays and 75 on the weekends. Wow, That's like a, a golden age for getting paid at the clubs, right? <laughs> well, it, you know, that was always exciting to go through and get your envelope. And sometimes if you hadn't been there for a while, you would have accrued quite a few checks in there. So I always appreciated that you didn't come here. And this was actually the first place that I ever came when I first drove to Los Angeles. Uh, uh, I did the first fact find mission by myself. So I came and I drove my little, um, I had a little red Volkswagen golf and I drove it from San Francisco to here. And I came directly here and I met Janine Garofalo. Uh, she's somebody who I was very close with. She had come to San Francisco and done a bunch of weeks at the Holy city zoo, which is a club there. So she convinced me to come here. So I met her here with Greg Otto and, um, uh, I can't remember her name. It was Stephanie. She's married now. So her name is different, but she was Stephanie Wilder. She's different. Her, her name is different though. Now I think, I think she's got married. So we all sat in a table and we talked and, um, I started getting to do sets here. I would call Eric on the phone. Eric was, um, I guess sort of the manager of the club at the time. And, um, was Bud Friedman involved at that point at all? Bud was here, but Bud was only here. Um, he would just sit at the big table in um, the front and kind of hold court. Um, he was really met and his beautiful wife, blonde woman. He uh, didn't want her to smoke cigarettes. So she would always like, come by me and we'd steal a couple of drags out of my smokes. Um, but uh, he was here. He was very active, but he wasn't active in doing the phone calls. That was Eric. Um, you, Eric Fagan. Yeah. Eric Fagan. Before my time. Way before yeah. Eric Fagan, you would call, um, and, uh, he would hook you up with spots and, um, Eric and, uh, Lisa Langang which were friends and she was, uh, the manager of the improv in San Francisco. Mm. So she would sort of fill him, him in on who would be good to book. And so that was all of us from San Francisco. She, she recommended, and then she went on to become the head of comedy central much later. All of these people like, um, at that point, uh, Dave Rath and Dave Becky were both um, doormen at the Improv in San Diego. And uh, they also went on to great success as comedy managers. Um, but uh, we were all very young at that time. And, and the Improv here was uh, kind of a hub for all of us, as was the one in Santa Monica, which many years ago, mm-hmm. there was an Improv in Santa Monica. It's very hard for me to get out of my head that the club is not there anymore. I keep thinking there's an improv in Santa Monica, but it's not there. So but we would go there and do, do spots. And um, so I'd come here and hang out with uh, uh, Wayne Fetterman was a very good friend of mine, very young when we were young and we're still uh, very close. Um, but yeah, this place was a, a big um, sort of meeting place, kind of clubhouse. And we'd all come here and, and do spots here. And it was always very exciting. And then when did that shift where the clubs kind of seemingly went out of disfavor or favor? Well, there was a sort of a thing where it was probably 1990 where things shifted, um, where, uh, some acts weren't getting as much time as they should at, uh, the improv and at the improvs on the road. And so you had, um, these little, uh, cafe shows, which were, um, uh, like, uh, big and tall books, or um, even Largo, which at that point uh, was just starting to do comedy. Um, And then there was Pedro's, there was the Onyx, there was all of these little club shows, not club shows, but uh, cafe shows, which were sort of giving rise to the birth of like alternative comedy. And so you'd see sort of different acts there. Um, But then there was certain people who could do both. So I could do 
both the alternative clubs and the mainstream clubs. So I would do the mainstream clubs on the weekend and I would do all of the alternative clubs during the week. And the alternative clubs were people like myself and Janine Garofalo again and Kathy Griffin and Karen Kilgariff and um, David Cross. Um, We would all at some point on weekday nights, I remember going with Janine and we would go to this um, cafe on on La Brea called Ministry that was open all night. And they were um, working on the first uh, drafts of the Ben Stiller show, what would become the Ben Stiller show. So I remember sitting there with her and Ben and Colin Quinn and Dino um, and uh, all, all of these uh, very sort of alternative guys who were, um, you know, trying to create something new. Bobo and Kirk would be down there. And then we were also all part of the, Mr. Show crew, sort of the, our 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 uh, group of friends was very involved with that. And then our friends were so, we became so famously like this group of friends, which is really weird <laughs> that there was a, a big story on us in um, the New York Times Sunday magazine. And uh, it, it was really weird because we were sort of like the Brat Pack in a way. Um, not Not the Rat Pack, but the Brat Pack, which is like, uh, Jen Nelson, yeah. <laughs> Molly Ringwald, Molly Ringwald, and Andrew McCarthy and Rob Lowe, and we were just sort of coming off of the tail of that. So we were that, but for comedy. So that's all the Mister Show guys, like Bob and David, and then um, Ben and um, myself and Janine and uh, Sarah Silverman, and um, so we were sort of like very famously friends, which kind of made it so that we couldn't be friends anymore. <laughs> like we really couldn't really hang out cause it was weird after that. But, um, so that's sort of what the nineties was for me. Did you sense at the time that, that there was a, an important shift in what was happening with comedy? I couldn't really tell. I mean, cause I was in it, so I don't really know. It did seem like when it started to merge, which I think is right around, um, kind of like Mr. Show and the end of Mr. Show where uh, you were seeing um, people getting very into alternative comedy and that seeing people like Patton Oswalt and Brian Posehn and, and Dana Gould. And, and uh, um, I think that the audiences for alternative comedy grew and then it sort of become, became very uncool to be a mainstream comic in a sense, because then you would see those people as being very hacky like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I was always in both. So I never had a value judgment on either or, but, uh, there was definitely a divide that kind of came together. And I say important because for me, um, was Mr. Show and seeing that, that really defined that there was, you know, a whole different realm of comedy that really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course that was born out of, of your brat pack. Yeah. And also it was the kind of comedy that was just um, really exciting and really like freeform. Like the thing that's so great about Mr. Show is that it wasn't a traditional sketch show where they would have sketch and it'd be over. You would actually have these, these stories that linked together and that, that connection that sort of like almost really came from um, European film and, and, and like, uh, um, the French new wave that there was this sort of a new wave of comedy that uh, was very inspired by all of that. And, and uh, like it, it, I think gaining most inspiration from the film run Lola run. That was like the main thing that like, if people actually like watch Mr. Show, they should go back and watch run Lola run. And then I want to watch that again. It's really, it's a, it's a really great, great, um, incredibly intense German film. And, um, so much of Mr. Show has so much to do with that movie. That's interesting. I never made that connection. Yes. I guess I can picture lots of scenes with David Cross running. Yes. Well, down a street. Yes. <laughs> and um, he had a character that um, in Mr. Show that's continually getting arrested on cops. Oh, right. Well, they made a movie out of that. Yeah. So the movie is actually based on Run, Lola, Run. It's, it's called Run, Ronnie, Run. Yeah. I never put that together. It's the same format of um, the the basic structure of Run, Lola, Run, but it's instead of, uh, it's not Fam- Famke Jansen, it's another uh 
German actress, but it's it's David Cross, and, and so you, it's very funny. If it's a good uh, double feature, because Run Lola Run is actually very intensely upsetting, and um, Run Ronnie Run is really funny. So I think it's very underrated. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's a great movie, and that was written by Scott Ackerman, who um, is now um, he does comedy Bang Bang, and uh, he does a lot of podcast stuff. He's, he's very, uh, he, 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 he's very prolific. He was my boyfriend at the time when he was writing for Mr. Show or he hadn't actually gotten the job yet. And then he sort of came in a little bit later. Um, but yeah, they, they, uh, really was, uh, Mr. Show was a great training ground for so many comedians and actors and people that we really worship now. Yeah. And it exposed a whole new generation to, like I said, that comedy could have this whole different look, um, and feel. And a big part of it for me too was, and I grew up watching stand up on comedy central or the comedy network at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so many, um, scenes in Mr. Show where they'll have hacky comics and like just parodies of comics where mm-hmm. when I moved, moved to LA in 2005 to, you know, pursue comedy in earnest, I, it, the clubs just were straight hacky. And there was like, if you yeah. told me I'd be booking a club, you know, 10 years later, I would have laughed just because it seemed like so out of my realm. And as you can tell, I've been trying to, you know, bridge the gap more because Mm -hmm. to me, to me, the best comics can do any room. Yeah. And I think that, uh, there are certain people that were doing both. Um, a good example, uh, would be Bobcat Goldthwait, who, um, was actually very much a punk rock comedian. And then, uh, really was part of this era of, um, comedians who, uh, were character comics. He was a very big character comic. And, and, um, so then he, uh, was basically able to do whatever he wanted to. He could do both the alternative rooms and also, um, big mainstream clubs. And, um, there was an era of, uh, people like Judy Tenuta and Emo Phillips, like character comics were a big part of, I think, the way that we viewed comedy at the time, because we, we had seen comedy almost become a parody of itself, you know, in that like nightclubs, it seemed like hacky. And so you Mm -hmm. had these very sort of outrageous people doing characters of comedians, but they were actually comedians too. Mm -hmm. So that was a very interesting time. So emo and, um, Bob became, um, people who were able to maneuver between both worlds. And I was able to maneuver between both worlds just because of the fact that I was the only Asian person in both worlds. So I could do both. How did you, what was your approach to, to doing both rooms? Did you change what you did? No, no, I, I was just the same. Like I didn't really have like an alternative set and like a normal set. Like I kind of did the same in both. Cause it, it, it wasn't that um, important for me to, uh, change what I did because of my identity. My identity was in itself outsider. And so an outsider room made sense no matter what. You didn't feel more freedom just to be more of a storyteller and be more intimate maybe in those rooms. Yeah. But that was sort of my style of comedy. I mean, I, I did have this initial period where I was introducing myself as a comedian. And then that was, a doing a lot of different jokes, um, that were more, um, structured, you know, and then in, um, alternative rooms, I could just work on new material and setups and, and, and kind of create what I became now. I'm, I'm pretty much more of a storyteller now, although I do have a big emphasis on LPMs. You got to have a lot of laughs per minute. It's very important to me. Well, and I think I'm sure that came from coming up in the clubs mm-hmm. and, and, like I said, when I first started booking this club, I I just never would have expected that in a thousand years because I came up in a generation where UCB and alt rooms were where comedy was happening. Mm -hmm. And that was like where the hip cool stuff was happening. Yeah. Um, but seeing now the value in a club and how you need by and large, I mean, there's some, a few people that can kind of eschew that, but to, to get the LPM to, to Mm -hmm. understand what it's like to go up in front of a crowd of people that don't know who you are, or just mm-hmm. that you need to be able to approach an audience like that. And yeah, you have to do both. I mean, I think like 
there's a lot of value in a good storyteller, but then there's also places for that and shows for that in particular, like, like storytelling shows, which I don't actually really do that many of that, um, that kind of stuff. I, uh, really am, um, very much, uh, into this idea that we have to have laughs per minute that you have, I, I would feel very uncomfortable. I, and that's probably why I don't really do that many storytelling shows that like, if you're telling a story, it's just a very, I, I would just be freaked out just, um, not having all of those laughs stacked up. You know, you have to have that. Yeah. Laughs are important for comedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think <laughs> so. It it's a big part of it. So you were saying before we started recording about at least at the, when you were first starting, the Tonight Show was still mm -hmm. like the golden. Yes, that was the golden ticket or the the gold ring, the brass ring, which you and the guy's name was Jim McCauley. And um, he uh, would uh, go out and find comics to groom for the Tonight Show. And it was a whole process because first he had to find you. Then he had to figure out what in your act worked for the Tonight Show. And then you'd have to get your act down perfect. So that perfect, it's four minutes and about 20 seconds that you need for a six minute set on the Tonight Show. So um, he would work with you specifically on trying to get your act perfect, that, that perfect four minutes and 20 seconds so that it was just down pat. And that would require you going and doing lots of spots all over town to make sure that you got it. Um, and, uh, at that time, um, Johnny Carson was preparing to retire. So there was this very, very big push to try to get on that show before he left. And, um, there was a few people who got it. That, uh, was a very exciting thing. Uh, I was a woman that I was opening for her name was destiny. So I was opening for her, um, Just straight destiny. Her name is destiny. Her name is destiny Smith, but she went by destiny. And, uh, so she was great cause she, um, took me on the road with her forever. And I, I g gained a lot of knowledge and, um, some real, uh, kind of good road chops from her. Um, she really taught me a lot. And, uh, so that, um, was such a big deal when she got the tonight show because also they didn't have a lot of women who were able to break through that particular gate. You couldn't get through it. Um, if you were a woman, if you were, um, any kind of minority, um, I think that there was one guy who did get through, it was Bob Smith, although it's unclear if he was in the Leno era or if this was still Johnny Carson, it might've still been Johnny Carson, but it, it was such a, a very, very, very big deal to get that particular show. So Jim McCauley was the gatekeeper for that. And then later on it became, Jimmy Gro Jimmy Brogan for the the Leno years and um I believe he's still over I don't know actually maybe not not with Fallon so that might be different um but uh Jimmy Brogan was uh Jim McCauley's successor and uh Jimmy Brogan would would find that 5 minutes and 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 get you ready and I'm actually banned from the Tonight Show from doing comedy I am okay to be a sit down guest, but I'm never able to do stand up comedy on there ever again. Because, um, when I did a set on there, I bombed so bad that I ran out of time. So I, my set came to like three minutes and 30 seconds. And so I, I had to keep going because I, I had a full another minute, which I, I had not vetted the jokes. I, I, I just had to put something else in from my act. And I don't even remember what it was, but it was going off of what had initially been prepared, you know, what they were ready for. And so because I violated that, I um, am banned from doing stand up on that show ever again. That stands through different hosts. And yeah. Different, really? I believe it. I There's believe a list. It stands. Well, also at this point too, in my career, I don't think I, would, I don't know. They, I don't think they would allow me to do stuff. Maybe they would allow you. I don't know. Just I'm going to say they would. I guess they would, but um, I have no authority. But I'm going to say they would. <laughs> but then, in a way, it, when you do stand up on there, it's almost like a step backwards. If you're a sit down guest, if you're pretty much usually a sit down guest, which I am on all the talk shows, then it is a step backwards to go and do stand up, right? I, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I mean, I think it's better to do stand up on there. I think it's cool. But um, in a sense, in, in terms of like the way that entertainment works, people always want to push for the sit down panel guest. 
you know, and then if you're like a big star comedian and you want to be the panel guest, like Jerry Seinfeld, sure. like Jerry Seinfeld, like Jerry, I don't think would do as, as I think actually Jerry would like to do a set on one of those shows as he loves comedy and he loves all that stuff. But I don't think that, uh, he would, I'm not sure. So you went on and you didn't have a set that bombed. you were you bombed. No, no. I prepared a set. We had gone through it. We had gone through a very, very, very long process of getting that perfect four minutes and 20 seconds. To, to, and so what happened at three minutes and 30? Like I, bom- I ran out of jokes and I sped up. Because like, there's no laugh breaks. No or, laughs. <laughs> no laughs? No laughs. And that's just the audience just staring. And I remember very clearly it was um, the week of the LA riots mm. and um, people were freaked out by Korean people and I was doing Korean material and people were really freaked out and they were just looking at me and it was all tourists, you know, as this, the tonight show audience is traditionally, they, they were just staring and scared and, uh, nobody knew what to do. And I just rushed through my jokes and at, at three minutes and 30 seconds, I had, I had nothing left. And so I had to just keep going and I don't really remember. Yeah. I don't remember what, exactly what I did, but it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't like I, fucked up. It was just that the audience wasn't ready to hear me. And I went too fast, which is a very common thing that happens when you do these television sets. Sometimes you just, it doesn't go that well, which is awful. Was that your first television set? <laughs> no, no, no. So you had no, my, yeah. my very, very first, um, late night, I had done evening at the improv, um, numerous times. And then I had done, they had this show called comic strip live, which on, was on Fox and that you would do at the laugh factory. And then there was, um, comedy on the road with John Biner, which was a weird one that you would do like on the road. So I did it in Vancouver. And then there was, um, MTV's half hour comedy hour, which was also some somewhat on the road too. Um, so I did a whole bunch of different, uh, those kinds of shows. And then I did, um, the Dennis Miller show, which was a long time ago before he was the Dennis Miller that we know now, but he had like sort of a, um, a kind of alternative style, uh, late night talk show that would probably have more in common with the daily show, especially with, he had, he had very liberal politics at that point. So he had a show, um, that, uh, Colin Quinn was the head writer on and, and, uh, also was one of the first comedians on there. But, um, I was, uh, picked to do that show because I was here at, at the improv bombing <laughs> so bad. And it was on a Friday night and the audience was packed and I was just bombing. And, um, one person was laughing and that was Dennis Miller. And he was in the back. <laughs> he was not, not able to contain himself. He was laughing so hard, partially because I was bombing. And that I actually, when I bomb, am particularly funny, <laughs> but nobody else can see it except uh, well, he saw it. And so uh, the next week I was booked to do Dennis Miller. So that was the first one. That's inspiring. Yeah. For a young comic listening to this, mm-hmm. you can bomb and get booked for oh, TV. Yeah. I, yeah, I bomb all the time and you can totally get booked. I think that there's something, there's a particular uh, painful hilarity at bombing. And when I see people bomb, it is so <laughs> funny. And in a way that they're out, out, an outsider of like you, you and you're a comic and you're watching somebody bomb, you're outside of the audience. When you're a comic, you're always outside of any audience. Cause you know, exactly like you're not like a run of the mill audience member. So you can sort of have this sort of sense of being outside of it. And then you can really laugh at the comic when they're bombing. Because it's also, you're glad it's not you, but also because you're familiar with that feeling. Well, bombing, I mean, there's different kinds of bombing too. There's bombing where you're just not ready. Mm-hmm. And I look back at when I was doing stand up, and, you know, no one's laughing, but also I don't have enough experience to know where to go next. Mm-hmm. And so I start getting in my head and I'm sure everyone's that. But then there's an experienced comic who like, I'm comfortable on stage. These jokes aren't hitting. And so there's still maybe a confidence. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Bombing when you're inexperienced is different because that's more like you just need more time and you need to sort of figure out what you're doing. That's not the same as going and saying really established people bomb, which only the best people bomb like and bomb like no other. And I, I mean, I'm talking like people like Bill Hicks in particular, actually Bill Hicks, because I worked with him a lot when I was young and he would bomb like no other, like no other, like walk 200 people easily. 
I remember actually um, he had been booked and um, the comedy club had been four waltz. So there was like uh, this, they, the, all the seats were bought out by a Republican convention of some sorts. And he was the comedian. Perfect fit. Yeah. <laughs> what? And he bombed so bad. And they, they all walked out of the room because he was like screaming at them at that point. Like he was so offended by their being offended, which I think was just magnificent to watch. And, and he was just a true master. So the people that are really good, uh, bomb. It's weird because I, I wouldn't even describe that as bombing. It's as that's just a, such a mismatch in yeah. <laughs> interest. But um, it's, it's the people who are really good who continue to take risks yeah. and continue to push the boundaries of what comedy is and what subjects can be talked about. Um, that's true uh, inspiration. That's true genius. And and they're, therefore they take um, a lot of getting used to. That's not. Um, like they care about the last per minute thing. It's not like they care about anything. They want to work on what they're working on, you know, and they're not about crowd placing. It's not about pandering. It's, it's really about creating and, and understanding that this is an art form and a very difficult art form. So that's what I appreciate about um, watching comedy as much as I do. I still go out and see comedy all the time and work in clubs in town a lot. And, uh, you know, cause when you're a headliner, there's this sort of disconnect where you don't go out and see comics, you just on your own and you're not going and seeing anybody else. And you, you can just be doing that for years. And I don't do that. I I'm very much involved with being around clubs and being in town and seeing people. Is there anyone right now that you you love to see or that you've recently discovered? Um, I, I really love Mar- Marcella Arguello. I think she's just genius. Um, I love Bobby Lee. Bobby Lee, I just die. Like, I I just, I can't control myself. Like, I laugh so hard. Also, Ali Wong, um, truly inspiring, truly brilliant. And I just, I have, I have such a cathartic release when I see Ali and Bobby. Uh, all, also because I feel... Like this is my progeny. These are the people Absolutely, that I inspired. Yeah. So that's, it's a very gratifying thing for me to go see them. And I really, really laugh. And, and, um, so the, those are the people right now, um, who I'm just hugely excited by. And I try to see every time I can. I love it. So your career, what would you even say is your job title right now? I'm a stand up comedian. I mean, that's, that's all I forever. do, really. Yeah, forever. I mean, I don't think that um, I'll retire. I don't have any plans to. I've been in it for a while. I mean, over three decades. So I'm 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 pretty committed to the job. I I, I don't know. Like some comics just think that they'll retire. I I never want to. I never want to stop doing the road. Well, hopefully, you always have something to say. Yeah. But your career is it's a fascinating, awesome path of not just stand up, but TV and mm-hmm. touring and yeah. dancing and mm-hmm. <laughs> how would you uh, describe or like, it seems like you've just done whatever you're inspired to do at any moment. Well, I like, um, I like going on the road and I like, uh, also the way that I travel on the road. Now I get to perform all over Europe and Asia and Australia. And, you know, that's really cool. Cause then you get to be, um, around all sorts of different environments and different kinds of clubs and, and, um, theaters. And it, I love that, you know, that's, that's really exciting. Um, and then everything else is a hobby, like my acting work. It's, it's a job of course, but that's also a hobby in a sense, because it's not my normal routine of like going to clubs or going to work a week somewhere. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I, I, have, I have my musical career, which is also a hobby. Um, my dance career, which is also a pretty big hobby. But uh, everything else is kind of um, in, in, in addition to what I do as a stand-up comedian. That's my main job. What is, what is a typical day for you? Like, what time do you wake up? Uh, How do you stay focused? Do you I take drugs? 
<laughs> for to help with this stuff? No, um, I uh, well, I get up pretty early. Um, I have uh, sort of a routine of different things that I do. If I'm on the road, I uh, will get up and do radio. That's a big part of like doing right. comedies. You get to get up really early and do radio. And then um, during the day, I like kind of like depending on what city I'm in, I'll go do something um, sightseeing to some extent. Um, then I'll have dinner with, uh, my opening act, uh, who could be all different people. And then, um, we'll do a show, sometimes two shows, uh, which is great. If I'm in LA, uh, I have, um, sort of my daytime, I'll be working on a movie or, or some other TV shows, some job that I got. Like right now I'm doing a movie with Will Smith. So I'm doing all sorts of action stuff. And during the day I, uh, We'll go uh, research my part if I'm not acting. So this uh, this part, I have to do a ride along with LAPD, shoot guns proficiently and go to the morgue because I uh, I can't say what happens, but I, someone <laughs> I, dies. I need to know uh, about death to some extent. So I'll spend the time um, researching uh, what I'm supposed to do or acting. And then at night, I'll do spots in town. Or I'll go see somebody in town. Um, and that's kind of like my day. Like for in, ad infinitum forever, it might shift slightly on the weekends. Um, I don't take drugs. I don't drink alcohol. Um, I'm pretty strict about that. I think that oh, I have for a long time. And unfortunately, like, well, comics love to smoke weed. That's like a major thing about being a comic. Like, Weed is a major, major, major comedian drug. And it, we've done it since the beginning of comedy, I think. But the problem with it, I think, is that it really does destroy part of your brain. And then, um, like, that's what I see is that after being a stoner for 30 odd years, I really see that the slowness of my thinking and how fast it was before and, and the the way that things have shifted now. I mean, some people can do it and um, there's no ill effects, but for me, I, I definitely think there's a lot of brain damage, which, um, you know, it, it can be significant depending on what you do. So now I'm kind of into not doing anything. I love coffee. Coffee's a big uh, comedian uh, drug as well. Sure. Um, so this is something that Jerry Seinfeld would, would also very much be in support of. We love coffee. Do, do you feel like your brain is coming back since you've, uh, put not it really, no, not really. Um, so I want to just preserve what I have, but you know, it's like, you really don't see the effects of it until much later. And then you're like, Oh wow. I really, I, I used to be able to think this, this way. And now I don't. And, um, you know, maybe, um, see, like I think comics smoke weed because when you're on the road a lot, it's very isolating. And so the one thing that can kind of bring you back home is sort of a, a drug feeling. And that can be like weed. Weed is easy to get. Everybody has it. Everybody wants to smoke with you so that you can kind of create home within your body with wherever you go. And, and uh, of all drugs, that's the least destructive, but unfortunately it does have an effect. And I, I can sense that now after being through it and I'm like, Oh wow, I can really, see the difference. I mean, there's people who do other drugs, but, uh, well, you know, and then that's sort of been the downfall of people like Mitch Hedberg yeah. or, or Greg Giraldo, brilliant guys, brilliant guys who, who should still be around. You know, there's drinking too. Drinking. I don't drinking. I don't think has a, an ill effect. I mean, I think it, it does take toll on your health and your life, but in terms of writing, I think drinking is, is fine. <laughs> Going back to, I mean, the creativity and kind of the the mind shift that you can get with, um, pot. Um, do you feel like you can still tap into that, um, yeah. aspect without it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And easier, mm -hmm. you know, once you know what you're, what you're kind of going for, um, pot does sort of give you a sort of a sense of ethereal thinking and, and this idea that you can make associations that you wouldn't normally be able to, but I think you can make those associations better without it. Um, or just drink instead. I don't know. I'm like, not try like I'm just, I feel like I'm condoning drinking instead of, I don't do any of it, but yeah, I, I do think pot. First of all, you, any sort of brilliance that you come up with, you're going to forget unless you write it down. And then if you're stone, you're not going to write it down anyway. <laughs> so if you're going to be a stoner, you have to write it down. 
So, or, or record it somehow. Do you meditate? I do meditate. Daily? I do meditate daily. Like a uh, transcendental or just, no, um, just no, nothing structured, nothing, nothing more than just sit there, you know, and mm-hmm. not do anything else. Right um, can depend, uh, it can be like five minutes. It can be as long as 15 to 20. I'm sort of trying to go longer. If I go longer, then it usually has to be some kind of guided meditation or listening to something. Um, it's very hard for me to sit there for more than, you know, 15 or 20 minutes without some kind of guided thing happening. Cause then it's like very, I, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't do TM. I know some people um, are into TM. Uh, Greg Fitzsimmons does TM. Um, he really loves it. I, I need more training with that. I, I can just sit there. That's all. They say that you're not supposed to have any expectations of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you feel like it, it's had a shift? In, in- um, I do it uh, because I have a great deal of anxiety about things. And, and also like if you're, Uh, a performer of any kind, you do get into really high stress situations. So like I do it um, to sort of manage my anxiety at like just life and the way that our business can really kind of throw us into things that are really difficult. Um, And so I just do it so that I can have some kind of equanimity in the rest of my life. So I just do it as a precaution so that I can call on it when I need to figure out that inner peace thing. Like I just do it as practice so that I'll have it when I'm in a situation where I'm like trying to do a shot where I'm holding a gun and not shake. Like guns make me really shaky. (laughs) So I need to like call in my meditation to just calm my arm down. So that's, so it's like kind of practical application. I love it. What else about pot? (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you quit as I, was very famously a stoner for a long time. When you quit, it's very upsetting to other comics and other stoners. So I quit. I remember I quit and then I did a, a quit. And then the day after I did a show with Cheech and Chong and Cypress Hill <laughs> and they were inconsolable that I had stopped smoking pot. They were like, are you all right? Like what's going on? Are you okay? Like it's very upsetting. <laughs> it seems like that's an opportunity to be like, all right, this is going to start tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. But you want to, you know, you, I like the social aspect of it. Like I love those guys and it's hard to like, you know, now that I've quit, this is actually the first Thanksgiving that it's, I, I've quit for a while. It's been about a year, but, um, last Thanksgiving, uh, I spent with Snoop Dogg. So now I can't, go. <laughs> I mean, I could go. The thing about it though, is like they do this thing where um, it's, I go with Snoop Dogg and um, um, Bishop Don Juan, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. greatest pimp in the world. Uh, who's very sweet. So what they do is- As they, far as pimps go. Yeah, as far as pimps go. He's very sweet. And so what they do is they they blow smoke into your nose. If you don't smoke, they're going to make you smoke. And so they take the joint and they'll put it inside the with the cherry inside. So they're blowing out and they blow it right into your nose. So you can't not get stoned. You just, if you're breathing, you're going to be stoned. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have to find a new place to go to Thanksgiving this year, which is not the worst problem, but it's just, it's very devastating to other stoners when you stop. Well, you're invited to my um, brother-in-law's parents' house in Northridge. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. It's great. There's about 40 people, lots Mm -hmm. of kids. You're going to love it. (laughs) That's cute. I think I'm going to be in Northridge anyway, because um, I'll be out there with Ian Harvey and his partner, Sarah, who's my manager. So they're having a big Northridge party. Thanksgiving shindig. So Northridge is going to be hopping, yeah, hopping. On, on Thanksgiving. I love Ian Harvey. Uh-huh. He was he's here great. recently. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he was just here. He's a, he's a great comic. And, um, he's also somebody that comes with me on the road. Um, as just Selene Luna. Comes. Love Selene, yeah. She's great. She comes with me on the road. And that's one thing that keeps, I think me sane as a comic is bringing your friends out on the road with you. Because if you're out there by yourself, sometimes it can be so lonely. And I think that's why a lot of comics do, you know, turn to drugs and alcohol for some kind of solace. But if you have friends uh, that you can take with you, Mm -hmm. other comics, I think that's just a wonderful thing. Well, that's a a theme of the show is being cool as fuck. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
you know, I'm sure when it, when it, you have to decide who you're going to take on the road, mm-hmm. obviously you want someone that's supremely talented, but I'm sure it's yeah. like also someone that's really cool. Some somebody fun who also, uh, you can go sightseeing with and, um, shopping or whatever, explore the city with, um, that's always such a great thing to be able to, it's one of the reasons why I love, um, comedy festivals because it shoves all these people into town that like you haven't seen forever. So it's great to be up in Montreal Mm -hmm. with all these comics that you haven't seen forever and just go to each other's like shows and hang out like, and then, uh, or like doing like a big arena gig. I did a big arena gig, which was so fun. Um, with Kevin Hart and it was me and Sarah Silverman and Dave Attell who are the opening acts. So we had the best time because oh, yeah. we never get to hang out. Me and Dave and Sarah never get to see each other. So we're always headlining on, on, on our own. So it's like, so such a pleasure to just kind of just kick around with these people who I, I really absolutely love. I love it. Well, thank you for coming on. Of course. Thank you. Before we wrap up, I mean, do you have any final thoughts for, for young comics and especially in this day and age where a comic has evolved and changed so much, but, um, in approaching their careers and, and kind of the gates they have to get through, like just, well, yeah, just do everything. And there's so many ways that you can be a comic. You can be one on social media. You can be a YouTube star. You can do stuff on Twitter. You can be on Insta, whatever. Uh, but also, uh, you know, being able to do comedy in clubs, there's just nothing like it. I love, uh, being a stand up comic. I think, um, you know, there, there's so many ways to be a comic, but like stand up comedy is just so special. So when you're at a club and you can be a, a good comic, that's like the ultimate to me and to never lose sight of what you love about comedy and, and, uh, you know, never stop learning. You know, there's so much to be gained by watching other people to, uh, um, going on the road to seeing different kinds of gigs you can do. There's all sorts of comics. Like there's people that can do corporate gigs. That's like very, that's the most illustrious says, you know, you'll do a gig and then you'll get a car. Right. <laughs> Did you ever do that? No, I'm never, <laughs> I, I'm never able to do corporate gigs cause I'm too dirty right. and I'm too, um, I, I think I, my work is too, um, it, 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 it I think it's, it's, it's too edgy. Like there's never a sense of safety, like a, 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 what would be a good corporate comic would be somebody like Jim Gaffigan, who was also my opening act for a long time. These are all these, I used to like also the provenance of like people you open for, like I used to be the opening act for um, Destiny. Oh, and John Stewart for a long time, Bill Hicks for a long time. And then the people who opened for me were Mike Birbiglia. Um, gosh, uh, Jim Gaffigan. Um, just all these like great comics, so many people. So like you, you get to see people like on the road to go see people open for people. If you can, um, have great people open for you because they'll go on to be doing great things too. So it's just a great community. I love comedy and, um, that in itself should be its own reward. So you're a comic, you have to just love comedy. And if you love comedy, that's, that's half the battle. Well, I never thought about it, but like you're, you're a gatekeeper in and of yourself of you're booking your opening acts because mm-hmm. you're giving stage time as much as, as a booker of a club or anything. Yeah. yeah. And um, part of that is so that I can see them, you know, like I love to bring people on the road with me who I'm a fan of. So then I can see them every night, like somebody like John Roberts, who I absolutely love and who, who opens for me too. So all of my openers, I always watch them because it's just so entertaining for me. So yeah, I'm a gatekeeper in that regard as well. I love it. Well, Margaret Show, thank you for joining me again. Thank you. This is how I end every show. Um, Work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. This has been Gatekeeper. Bye. Bye. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts.